Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... This Mother's Day, Americans are predicted to spend about $28 billion to celebrate their mothers. But for those who've lost their mothers, this is a tough time emotionally, made worse by the ongoing season of grief from COVID deaths. This is the second Mother's Day during the pandemic, but the first time many will be without mom. And in a year or so, with so much loss, the loss of community, of jobs, of normalcy, the grief over losing a mother can be overwhelming. Later in the show, Native American sports mascots, long-standing harmless tradition, or harmful stereotyping. Recent votes in Massachusetts schools show the mascot debate is far from over. We have a certain body of knowledge that is being passed on within the home. We have a certain identity. We have certain cultures. We have certain values across all of our different uh, nations. Uh, And then to go into these public schools and to see uh, that that identity, that culture, those values uh, be boiled down to caricatures, uh, it's it's harmful uh, to our students, uh, especially those indigenous students uh, who face uh, suicide rates two times that of their white peers. But first, joining me remotely, Hope Edelman, the author of Motherless Daughters, The Legacy of Loss. She joins us from Los Angeles. Welcome, Hope. Thank you, Callie. Pleasure to be here. Also with me, Lori Churchill, a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. She's the owner of Wellness Hub, a yoga and meditation center in Hubbardston, Massachusetts. Hello, Lori. Hi. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have both of you for this important conversation. Hope I want to start with you because you wrote the book literally about motherless daughters. And one of the points you make is that Mother's Day is often a trigger for women. Yes, it is. It's what's called an anniversary event, even though it's a holiday, because it comes around on the calendar at the same time every year. And especially if a mother has recently died, a daughter may feel a sense of trepidation, anticipation, anxiety as the holiday comes, because there really is no culturally sanctioned way to honor mothers who are no longer living on that weekend. And it's all around, right? Oh, it's everywhere. I mean, and now we get emails all the time. I know my my email box fills up with messages saying, don't forget to call your mom tomorrow. But this year, this year above all, companies seem to be becoming more sensitive to the issue. I know that Etsy sent around an email saying that if we know that we know that Mother's Day can be a sensitive time for many. And if you'd like to opt out of these emails, just check this box. And Several other companies are following suit now, which I, I think is a cultural sensitivity that we we in the mother loss community certainly appreciate. One company, Teleflora, it tried to lean in both ways to acknowledge uh, the anniversary event, as you said, but also to acknowledge 
that there is also a celebration of mothers who are still here. So here's their Mother's Day ad from Flower Delivery Service Teleflora. During this time when we're all told to stay apart, they'll find that somehow we've all grown a little bit closer. So that one day when this madness is all finally over, when this new normal goes back to normal, our children will one day tell stories about how in the spring of 2020, the world did not stop. It kept spinning and moving forward, fueled by the most powerful force on earth, a mother's love. That's a beautiful ad, Lori, and it acknowledges uh, the context in which this anniversary event, Mother's Day, occurs, which is all of this death from COVID. Um, A year ago in May, the anniversary event of Mother's Day, there were 90,000 U.S. deaths. But this year, in 2021, we're up to 572 as we're taping this conversation. So, Lori, uh, tell me about your caseload of uh, dealing with people who are grieving and also um, how COVID has impacted. Um, So it's interesting where I'm located. I'm central Massachusetts. So we haven't seen, if I were in a city, my caseload would probably look very different. Uh, My caseload has doubled since beginning of the pandemic. And it's mostly people who are triggered in their grief and loss because of the pandemic or because they've had other losses during the pandemic. My caseload, actually, I don't have very many COVID death-related grief and loss cases. Um, What I can say is that people have lost out on their ability to connect with other people, um, distract themselves. Um, Many, many things that could be helpful in coping with grief and loss aren't at their fingertips right now. Does COVID complicate it, even though people are are grieving uh, deaths not necessarily connected to COVID, but we're in the time of COVID? I think absolutely grief from COVID losses is far more complicated than what we have seen before for a number of reasons. You can't be with the person who is ill. Um, Some of the factors that make for a more complicated loss include if it seems preventable, if it happens to a lot of people. Um, And so there are other reasons that also make it far more difficult. People are exposed to suffering in a way that they haven't been, perhaps. Um, I think it's particularly difficult for children who are exposed to suffering and aren't really sure of what is all of this? What might I have had to do with it? Um, I have heard of kids who were very fearful that they may have passed it on to other people. Um, and a great deal of guilt about that. So, Hope, maybe you could go back to when you lost your mother and your first Mother's Day without her, um, because you were inspired to write your book, recognizing that there was a thread that connected uh, women who'd lost their mothers particularly. That's right. And you know, Callie, it's interesting. I was 17 when my mother died. I was about to start my senior year of high school. And I actually don't remember that first Mother's Day without her. In fact, I remember very little of the whole year after she died. I I think I was um, just in such a fog of confusion and disbelief. But I do remember the second Mother's Day without her. That was my freshman year of college. And I remember how all the girls in my dorm went together to the drugstore to buy Mother's Day cards. And I 
didn't want to call attention to myself. I didn't want to be an object of pity. I didn't even want anyone to know that my mother had died, which is very, very common among teenagers who lose a parent. And so I begged out of it by saying that I needed to study. And on Mother's Day itself, when all the girls were calling their moms to wish them a happy Mother's Day, I went to the library. I, you know, I, I tried to occupy myself with distractions. Um, like Lori said, this is a year in which our distractions are much more limited than they ever have been before. But I work with women who've lost their mothers, um, either recently or in the distant past. And, and almost to a person, they say, I just, I don't want to get out of bed on Mother's Day. I don't know how to spend the day. I want to be able to acknowledge my mother, but there's no way to do that on that weekend, which is why the motherless daughters groups around the world started holding luncheons on the day before Mother's Day so that we did have a, a place and an opportunity to reaffirm the enduring connection even after our moms have died. Tell me about that, I'm making a connection, because one of the things that both you and Lori emphasize is the importance of ritual. And so what you've done with this day that you've created, Hope, is is to replace other personal uh, rituals with your mom, with individual moms and daughters, with, with something else. That's right, because you may have had a family ritual around Mother's Day when your mother was still alive. And rituals are important because they connect the past, the present, and the future. They are reaffirming a relationship that has existed for a while. That's the past. You're doing something in the present, and you have the reasonable expectation that you'll be able to do the same thing again next year. But that, of course, is disrupted when a loved one dies. And the continuity of time has also been disrupted in the COVID era because we don't know what elements of the past we will be carrying forward into the future or when. So it's critically important if you've lost a mom to be able to replace your old rituals with some new ones so that you can continue having an inner relationship with her, which is where grief theory moved in the latter half of the 20th century. We used to talk about how we need to break bonds with the loved ones. We need to get over it. We need to move on. And now the prevailing belief in the grief community is that it's more important for adjustment and more helpful for adaptation for us to find ways to stay connected to our loved ones, not to leave them behind. Um, we found this interesting uh, comment from grief consultant Shelby Forsythia, who talked about her personal Mother's Day ritual after losing her mother and why it involves eating pizza. The very last meal that my mom was able to eat was uh, cheese pizza. And when she came back, I was dating someone at the time who was very intuitive. And my mother visited her in a dream after she died. And she reported back to me and she said, your mom says, thank you for the pizza. And I was like, you can't have possibly known that. And so almost every anniversary that relates to my mother, birthday, Mother's Day, uh, the day she died, uh, my birthday is cause for pizza. Hope, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. Shelby is a, a very, very bright light in the bereavement community. I love that story. I've, um, in my last, in my most recent book, I interviewed someone who had the same kind of ritual with cheese and crackers because that's mm -hmm. what her mother liked to eat and they used to eat it together. And that's just another example of how we can stay connected to our moms after they have passed. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Hope Edelman, author of Motherless Daughters, The Legacy of Loss, and Lori Churchill, social worker, therapist, and grief counselor who runs the Wellness Hub Center in Hubbardston, Massachusetts. 
Lori, how do you get to this, the, the space where you can create that celebratory ritual um, while at the same time acknowledging the grief? I've lost my mom um, some 20 years ago, and I have to fight jealousy. I see mothers and daughters together, and it just takes me over um, because I remember that I'd be doing stuff with my mom you know, in that way. Jealousy is so common. It's so common. And I think it brings up lots of feelings of guilt. So people get kind of stuck. Um, certainly with the moms who've lost children, I hear that a lot. Um, and in, in loss in general. I, one of the questions that I hear fairly frequently is, will I ever be happy again? And typically my response is happiness looks different. And that maybe what we can find is a sense of joy in living authentically as we find a way to live in the world without our people and we establish an ongoing relationship with them in whatever way we find. And that's where the rituals come in. A lot of the pain that I see people struggle with is when they can't live authentically, when the world doesn't wanna to talk to them about their grief and loss. And one of the unintended probably consequences of the pandemic is that it's in our faces. Like we can't mm. not talk about grief and loss. So for people that I've been working with, I think that's probably why my, I've been so busy and other grief counselors have been so busy is that people are feeling like, okay, it's time for me to work on this, whether it's a COVID loss or a recent or a remote loss for sure. And then the impact of having, as uh, Hope has described, an anniversary event mm-hmm. just brings it back. It's, um, you know, you're going along, you're going along, you're thinking you're okay, and then boom, um, here it is, and there you are. Um, and it's very odd. It, it feels like you're in limbo a little bit. Yeah. And you're living in the world where people aren't necessarily saying, oh, this is hard for you. I love to hear that there's movement towards normalizing it and giving people the opportunity to not have to engage in these rituals that, um, that might not apply directly. I think about kids who are in school and how hard it is for them when Mother's Day rolls around and there's a Mother's Day activity and they may not have their mom it's really important that the people around them are going, let's be sensitive to this. Let's let them do a memorial in a way that works for them and not force them to fit into a mold that doesn't appreciate their loss experience. So we can agree that uh, loss of a parent, um, either mother or father, is really uh, traumatic on, on uh, certain levels, particularly if you were close to your, your parent. Um, but I'm interested in these studies that show girls who, who the loss of their mothers have the hardest time. And Lori, that's something you've looked into. Uh, talk to me about that. I think that um, it's absolutely true. And I'm glad that the information is out there. Um, the way that we experience our loss really is based on what our relationship was like with the person who has died. And mothers are so important, obviously. Hmm. Hope, how would you weigh in on that with these studies that show girls who lose their mothers have the hardest time? Well, there's a wide body of literature talking about how the um, response of the surviving caregiver and the child's relationship with that caregiver can have as much as an Im- of an impact on them and sometimes even more than the loss of the person themselves. And because I work with women who've lost mothers, most of whom were then in the custodial care of their fathers, um, who may not have been the uh, p- the dominant parent in the house, you know, the one responsible for the children's emotional needs, who perhaps um, wasn't there to attend to the child's grief, or because we know that masculine forms of grief are very different than feminine forms of grief. So if the 
daughter has a difficult or distant relationship with her father, her adjustment will be more difficult over the long term. Um, Children who lose the emotional center in the household are the ones who seem to suffer the most over the long term. And the ones that I encounter who struggle the most are the daughters who then are in a family of only males. So they are either a single a single child, an only child who's now being raised by a father, or they are a sister who only has brothers. And then the way that grief is addressed and spoken about in the family would be in a manner that may not feel natural to her or meet her needs. And then that plays out and it has effect on her over the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you've uh, made clear, Hope, observing the groups that are a part of the motherless daughters uh, support groups, is that the the COVID um, context makes death look a little bit different. Like you're in a limbo. You call it as something in between in the way that people lose their mothers. So if you've lost your mother through regular loss or end of a protracted illness, that's one thing, or a sudden event. But this is something else. Talk about that. It is. Um, I co-led a support group online last year just for women who had lost mothers to COVID. And they were talking about grief, uh, their, their grief, you know, slightly different than other women that I've encountered have experienced it. Now, they were all adults when their mothers died. But the um, lost opportunity to be with their mothers at the time of death, the uh, the distant nature of being able to say goodbye or hearing her deathbed request if she had been able to give one or to, you know, just have those final moments with her to have the physical contact really weighed very heavily on these women. Also, um, this was closer to the beginning of the pandemic when so little was known, but what I heard from them was a lot of anger, a lot of anger because as Lori said, this was a preventable death, but also because they were encountering people who were um, minimizing their loss, who were discrediting it, by saying that COVID was a hoax, by um, by refusing to wear masks or keep other people safe, and there was this this you know this sense like if only people had adhered to a social social contract, maybe my mother would still be alive. Because these weren't all mothers with pre-existing conditions. Some of them were mothers who were quite healthy and um, had shown no sign of any illness or underlying conditions that might have predicted a death from COVID. Yeah, that's that is a complicated um, morning. You you don't quite know what to do with that. Um, I I don't know um, where to credit the study, but it was uh, quoted in a USA Today story about um, researchers finding that each COVID nineteen death affected an estimated nine survivors. So. At the point of writing this piece, I was saying that translates to more than 5 million Americans who are currently grieving loved ones lost to the virus. And this was at 556 deaths total. And this was the response. So if you think about that, it's, um, as we know, uh, loss does impact others than the, the immediate person. But that's a lot of people, nine survivors. <laughs> Tremendous. And that I believe that was a Pennsylvania State University study but done by researchers there. Right. So they were saying that exponentially it's a multiple of nine. And let's not forget that 2.8 million people die every year in the United States. And so then, you know, let's look at that exponentially as well, because all of those people weren't able to 
mourn their loved ones using the familiar and comforting rituals that they were accustomed to and that they would have expected, meaning, you know, a large funeral, a memorial service with people flying in to to mourn the passing of one of their own together as a community. That's a big piece of what's been lost during COVID is the opportunity to mourn in community. It's not the same over Zoom. You know, it's just not the same as having a receiving line where the people who are important to you and were important to your loved one can come, can hug you, can share their memories in person. And so I've been saying, even if the memorial service or the celebration of life needs to be held a year or two years later, it's still important to do it and people will still attend. And to follow up with that, here's Leslie Streeter on NBC's Today with Hoda and Jenna talking about coping with grief during a pandemic. Grief is what we feel. And the mourning is what we've been missing, unfortunately, because of COVID. It's the funerals. It's the sitting shiva. It's the bringing chicken to your mama's house, that kind of thing. And I think that we've found ways, um, because humans are resilient, um, of doing, it, whether it's Zoom uh, recollections or um, if we're not able to have in-person memorials or some people using their um, Facebook pages as like a guest book and just telling the story of who those people were. Because, Lori, the important thing is that you have to be able to kind of make sense of of the loss. And if it's confusing in this way and if you're in a context of people challenging whether it even happened, um I'm referring now to those people calling the uh, COVID pandemic a a an, a hoax. That is really tough. I mean, when I lost my mom, I didn't have that as a context. So, um, talk to me about just trying to get people to recognize that they may be doing a. Um, emotional damage to themselves because they're trying to figure out what's happening and they can't, they can't get a, can't get a, a, a grip on it. Are you saying like how hard it is to live in the yes. world when it doesn't recognize your grief? That's right. Yeah. Um, the one thing that's resonating for me is that grief is a lifelong process. And a lot of times I'll say to the people that I'm working with, you'll do whatever work you do in this moment. And it's going to look different six months from now. And it's going to look different, you know, six years from now. And certainly, if we take a look at grief from very young to much older, you know, if a child loses a parent when they're in elementary school, a girl losing a mom, it's going to look different when they're a a senior and are going to prom and they're not buying a dress with their mom or getting married or whatever. So I often will say to people, let's stay in the here and now and know that we don't have to do all of this work right now. And that can lessen some of the pressure of I have to I have to do it. So living most authentically in the world that you're in right now, trying to get some language to say to people, not right now, I can't do this. I can't have this conversation right now where this is hard for me. Um, and I'm really grateful that so much is happening in the world to, um, to validate the grief experience so that people don't have to feel so inauthentic in the way that they're living. So Laurie, we know people are overeating, doing drugs probably, a lot of alcohol. We've seen that the increase in the amount of alcohol being sold and folks have fallen into um, depression and anxiety, um, which is, you know, sparked by a lot of this grief. How, what, what do you say to people as they're just trying to start to live in the here and now, to be authentic, you know, recognize, feel the pain, but now try to put something else in place to sort of have, if you will, constructive mourning. 
Actually, one of the first questions I ask people is whether or not they feel any anxiety and 100% of them will say yes. And oftentimes I'll say to them, did it exist before you lost your person? So many times the answer is no. I do a fair amount of education in terms of how the brain works and how our nervous systems are structured. So while there's a lot to be talked about in terms of the grief and the loss, if our nervous system is on overdrive because it's expecting bad things to happen, then we are at a heightened sense of living where it's difficult to sleep, it's difficult to think straight, it's difficult to be in relationship with other people. So that's why we've chosen to have a holistic approach in our program so that people can get settled in that way first and in an ongoing way so that it helps with the regulation of the emotions and build an ability to sit with that which is distressful. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Hope Edelman, author of Motherless Daughters, The Legacy of Loss, Lori Churchill, social worker, therapist, and grief counselor who runs the Wellness Hub Center in Hubbardston. Um, Hope, I uh, read a list of maybe some things that people could do specific to Mother's Day to sort of protect themselves emotionally. One of them is say no to Mother's Day Zoom calls. This was on Everyday Health, uh, pulled together by a McKinsey Alleman. Disconnect from all media. Share a memory. Um, as, as Lori has just said, feel what you're feeling. What are other things? First of all, do you agree that those are good things to do? And what, what else would you suggest? Well, I think, you know, the underlying assumption there is that whoever is experiencing that distress is not a mother themselves because mm. about two thirds of the women that I work with have children. And so mother's day has become about them. And to a certain extent, they say that's a relief because it's not only a day to think about what's missing in their lives, but then they're not sure how to fit their mother or their, their mother's memory into that. Um, I think unplugging from social media is an excellent idea if you are feeling distress or anxiety about Mother's Day, because then you're just seeing everyone celebrating with their mothers and it becomes a painful reminder of what you no longer have. But some of the suggestions that I give women are, what did you enjoy doing with your mother? How can you bring that into the day somehow? Is there some way that you can acknowledge and honor the relationship that you shared? Or what was one of her qualities that you most admire? How can you put that into action somehow on Mother's Day? I mean, my mother was very altruistic. She was like almost a professional volunteer. She was always helping others in need. She was um, very committed to social justice in the 1960s and the 1970s. So I try to spend at least part of Mother's Day in service to others or to another to honor my mother's legacy. Um, this year also, Callie, for the first time because of COVID, the motherless daughters groups that hold their luncheons around the world on the Saturday before Mother's Day can't do it in person. So for the first time, we're doing a virtual event and we have hundreds of women signed up already from, I believe, 14 countries and counting. Mm -hmm. There are 26 countries who celebrate Mother's Day this year on May 9th. So we're going to come together. We're going to have some speakers. We're going, it's in just 90 minutes and it's absolutely free. 
but um, because we want everyone to be able to attend. But we're going to do a toast to our mothers and a circle of remembrance where we say our name and our mother's names out loud to give women a place on that weekend where they can acknowledge my mother may not be living, but she's still my mother and she's still important to me. And um, I want to come together in community with others who can understand and who feel the same way. Because the social component of grief, the social component of mourning, is so critically important for our long-term adjustment. And again, that's what's taken a real hit during the COVID era, because we haven't been able to come together in person. You know, I, I really couldn't agree more with what you've said in terms of trying to have that community. Before I lost my mother, I... I had a sense of how devastating it was, but I didn't really, really get it until I lost my mother. Um, and that is, you need to be in community with people who've had that shared experience. I mean, it's, for me anyway, I think that's critically important around Mother's Day because anniversary event um, and a prominent one, it's the third biggest retail holiday in the U.S., um, it, that's amazing. You, there is nowhere you can go without, you know, thinking about it uh, in a certain way or the way it's been promoted anyway. So I think that community, I just can't say enough about that, that uh, to, for people to find their way with other people who've lost um, it, those moments when you've gathered before it must be something else. They're really quite extraordinary. And and also, if, if a listener here is saying, well, I still have my mom, but I know someone who lost their mom. What can I do for them this year? I find that one of the most uh, helpful things you can do when you know that a friend or a relative has lost their mom and is, is thinking about them on this weekend is just tell me a story about your mom. Tell me something about your mom. Um, let's talk about your mom. Let's share a memory of your mom. Um, bring her into the present in a way that um, helps them feel that supported as mourners, but also helps them reaffirm that connection with their mom. Laurie Churchill, is there something that you would like people to take away from this moment in time, this Mother's Day, this second Mother's Day during the pandemic, um, about grieving, about ritual, about looking forward, about whatever you think is important that people hear if they don't hear anything else you've said? You know, I I love hearing all of what we've talked about. I often will say to people that it's it's almost like when you experience the loss of somebody, you go through this invisible doorway that you didn't know existed. And then you're on the other side, kind of like Kelly, you're saying that you need to be with people that get it. I'm so grateful to be part of this piece of things where the word can get out there of grief matters. Relationships matter after people die. And I think that that's the piece that, that I keep coming back to. How do you live most authentically with your loss? Well, now it's an invitation. I think it's a really wonderful invitation to be a part of living authentically with your loss because the big the big challenge of grief work is how do I live in the world without them? And how do I maintain an ongoing bond? I, I am always glad when people will share on Facebook. It's been so many years, but I've, I'm remembering my, you know, my mom today, it was her birthday or her, the, the death anniversary or whatever, so that we can continue to have an opportunity to recognize them. I think that that's a very powerful and a really important part of the grief journey. Hope, what would you say? 
I, would, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that, you know, as our culture hopefully becomes more grief literate, and it's so unfortunate that we needed to go through a worldwide pandemic and lose more than, well, more than half a million Americans and many more around the world for uh, an increasing number of people to understand the impact of grief. And as Laurie says, that it is a lifelong process. But I do hope that we are becoming more comfortable talking about grief as a culture. And what will follow, I hope, is that we will learn how to support each other through the loss of loved ones and all that comes after. Well, I thank both of you for talking with me. Um, It's particularly important for this motherless daughter on Mother's Day, and I know it will be for many of my listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, Callie. Thank you. Hope Edelman is the author of Motherless Daughters, The Legacy of Loss. Lori Churchill is a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. She's the owner of Wellness Hub, a yoga and meditation center in Hubbardston, Massachusetts. Coming up, both professional and amateur sports teams across the country have long adopted Native American imagery to represent their teams. That's despite decades of objections by Native Americans and others claiming the mascots were offensive. As the ongoing debate recently heated up, many of the schools got rid of or replaced the mascots, but not everybody supports removals, as two recent votes in Massachusetts demonstrate. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. For years, the owner of a certain well-known football team in Washington, D.C., publicly pushed back against complaints that the team's name and imagery trafficked in stereotypes of Native Americans. But that all changed last year in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent national racial reckoning. Organizers of the national movement to remove Native American mascots joined others in demanding the team finally drop the offensive name and imagery. Now known as the Washington football team, the change is part of a wave of mascot removals, including some here in Massachusetts. But not everybody is on board. Joining me remotely, Jean-Luc Perit president of the Board of Directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston and member of the Tunica Biloxi Tribe of Louisiana. Welcome, Jean-Luc. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So I want to make clear that what made that extra pressure for that Washington team to change its name uh, finally uh, was a gathering of a group of investors, um, and that were Nike and FedEx and PepsiCo, and they went to the top guy who had been saying for years he would never, ever, ever change the name, and they said, oh, you're going to change it, and he did. Um, So this was uh, social justice realized uh, through commerce, if you will, Uh, but uh, that was the pressure that finally brought about the change. We don't want to be naive that he had an awakening. That's what happened. But nonetheless, um, I wanted to have this discussion with you because once again, there at high schools across uh, the state, the conversation is um, or the debate is happening once again. So first, um, why don't you just uh, say simply why this use of 
mascots uh, for sports teams is offensive? It is offensive because the the mascots for sports teams are uh, racist. And it's not just uh, myself saying this, and it's not just indigenous people saying this. It's actually uh, the students at these high schools, the cheerleaders, the uh, the athletes, uh, the people who are most impacted uh, by this representation. Uh, they don't see where these uh, stereotypes necessarily are, are rooted. They are not relevant to the culture that of the students today. Uh, who are much more, uh, you know, they, they come from a different culture. And so, uh, so these stereotypes, these, these mascots, uh, today's students are not afraid to call them out as racist. Mm-hmm. And um, to be clear, the, some of the imagery that's been um, both appropriated and misused in this way um, is really s- sacred. I wanted to give people a chance to hear. This is Wilson Pipestem. He's a member of the Oto Missouriya tribe's Bear Clan, and he told NPR back in 2013 uh, what he teaches his children about the importance of the symbols. We've taught them that our Creator has given us eagle feathers as a way to pray. Uh, that our clan, we have different things that we can and cannot do associated with um, our because of who we are and because of members of a clan and uh, that ceremonial uses of paint have meaning, and these are all good things, and they they're make us, it's good to be a, an Indian person. And so when they see things that seem, that seem to them different, they were troubled by it. So, you know, I think that's important for people because somehow, um, Jean-Luc, it's, there's been a disconnect between what people see as kind of a harmless use of something to just cheer on um, high school or professional spirit in many cases, and symbols that have meaning. Yes, and, and I want to say that it's, it's as of much more uh, importance to our uh, indigenous students who are in these high schools, uh, because as you're, as you're seeing from those, uh, those comments, we have a certain body of knowledge that is being passed on within the home. We have a certain identity. We have certain cultures. We have certain values across all of our different uh, nations. Uh, and then to go into these public schools and to see uh, that that identity, that culture, those values uh, be boiled down to caricatures, uh, it's, it's harmful uh, to our students, uh, especially those indigenous students uh, who face uh, suicide rates two times that of their white peers. Um, in that same NPR report back in 2013, the question was, uh, was there psychological damage of the sort that you're describing for Uh, Native American students, but also others by seeing these images uh, played out in this way uh, on a consistent basis. And it turns out there are a series of studies that that demonstrate that. And here's psychologist Michael Friedman speaking to NPR about the effects of this constant seeing of the stereotypical Native American imagery. A series of studies show that if Native Americans are shown images of stereotypical Native American mascots, that a variety of effects occur. Self-esteem goes down, uh, belief in community goes down, belief in achievement goes down, and mood goes down. And these effects are primarily among Native American adolescents. Similarly, if someone who's non-Native American sees an image, a stereotypical stereotypical image of a Native American mascot, their associations with their thoughts about the Native American community also gets worse. So whoever you are, if you see these images, your beliefs about Native Americans gets worse. So I wanted to lay the table that way, uh, Jean-Luc Perrit, 
president of the board of directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston, because in Massachusetts, according to the New England Anti-Mascot Coalition, there are 24 um, high schools that have uh, or, and are using some of these images either as uh, logos or um, other kinds of images. Um, and that's some of them have already made moves to remove them. But we just had, just a couple of weeks ago, this debate again, um, and the results are quite different from two schools. So uh, first, uh, Algonquin Regional High School decided to replace its Tomahawks mascot. Let's take a listen. It is official. Algonquin Regional High School is changing up its logo and mascot. The Tomahawks are getting switched out for the letter A. The Northboro-Southboro Regional School Committee voted 9-0 to zero in a virtual meeting to change the imagery. So at the same time, Jean-Luc, I'm going to have you respond to all of this. I just want to lay it all on the table. Um, in Wakefield, there had been uh, a vote by the school committee you know, last month to get rid of the logo. And now they had a non-binding referendum and by 600 votes overrode uh, that vote to get rid of it and this time voted to keep it. Uh, so let's take a listen from some of the Wakefield residents expressing their thoughts. They're all very different thoughts on the Wakefield Memorial High School's Native American Warriors mascot. It's supposed to be an honor to them, so I have no problem with it. These other people, they're going to find something else to complain about. Well, I think it's the history of Wakefield, and I, I think it's a shame that they're trying to get rid of it. They don't need the headdress, but I still keep them as the warriors. It's a stereotype, and there's a lot of research that shows that it's very harmful to, to Native youth. It's, it's harmful to all of our students, to be honest. So, Jean-Luc, what do you make of that? Um, there's Here's one community that was determined uh, not to let go of it, and another one that realized that it was doing damage and they wanted to move in a different direction. Right. There is a recurrent theme in those comments from uh, Wakefield uh, in the use of the pronoun they. Um, and the warrior logo, uh, for those that who defend it, uh, would call it a symbol of pride, of courage. Uh, and yet this, uh, this mysterious they, uh, those that are othered, are uh, the people who have a, a problem with it. Uh, and so as, um, as a member of the indigenous community, as somebody that does have a problem uh, with native mascots, you know, I, by those comments, I do feel othered. Uh, and I have to question then, you know, it, that is it truly an honor to me uh, to have those mascots? Is it representative of my pride, of my courage? And I would say no. Uh, my pride and my courage is rooted in the liberation of uh, indigenous uh, peoples. So whatever we can do to take down these mascots, uh, we will do. Now, what's interesting about this is that this, I don't think a lot of people understand it. It's not, even though uh, we've talked about the the um, acceleration of interest in removing uh, the logos and the imagery after George Floyd's murder last summer. In fact, the, the movement to get rid of these symbols has been going on since the 20th century. And I was surprised to learn, Jean-Luc, that in 20, uh, 2005, the NCAA banned teams from using, quote, hostile and abusive racial, ethnic, national origin mascots, nicknames, or imagery. Now, at postseason tournaments causing uh, 
a lot of uh, universities did then retire their mascots. But apparently, there's room for interpretation in that. I don't see how. And so institutions are, as we've seen here in Massachusetts, are coming down on, well, um, maybe we can get rid of a piece of it, but not the other. And if we're respectful, I'm using air quotes now, it's okay. So is there any way to make the use of these mascots, coming from your perspective, of course, respectful? So there is a uh, there is a bill that is in uh, the legislature. That bill does include a stipulation that if a tribal nation does um, have a free prior and informed consent to the use of, of their specific identity uh, for the use of, of representing a, you know, a sports team, uh, then that is something that is uh, that is appropriate. And, and what that means is that we are um, now able to, through policy, uh, just understand and, and formalize what that means to have those those uh, government to government relationships and 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 you know really um, really honoring what it means for a community, for a nation uh, to be able to, uh, have its own self-determination, but then also regulate the use of its identity. So give me an example of that and, um, why what we're seeing at, in these discussions at some high schools does not, um, represent what you're saying. Right. I mean, we do have an example in, um, in Florida, uh, for example, the, the Seminole Nation has given uh, through formal agreements uh, the ability for certain sports teams to use their national identity uh, for those mascots. Uh, whereas, you know, here in Massachusetts, and you, again, you know, it has been an acceleration in, uh, in relation to the response to the murder of George Floyd. Uh, in the beginning of uh, 2020, we actually had 40, uh, and we are now down to 24. Just to be clear, you mean in Massachusetts? Correct. So I think that, um, and, and that is public schools in Massachusetts. Okay, very good. So I think that that acceleration uh, is indicative of how problematic um, those symbols are for those public schools. That acceleration to, to remove uh, is indicative of, of the problem. So let's go back to the bill that was um, there was discussion of this bill at the Massachusetts State House last year. There was, in fact, a, a rally there um, about this bill against the sports mascots. Here's Stephanie Salguero speaking to WCVB during the rally at the Massachusetts State House. I think that it's a step in the right direction. I think that Native students won't have to, or other students, white students, won't have to see this mascot and have to think of Native Americans as just a tool, you know, Native Americans as just a wrongful representation. Tell me about what the legislation does in addition to what you've already described. Correct. So this is a um, this is a bill to ban uh, Native mascots. Again, it does... It does have that stipulation that if a tribal nation does consent uh, to have their specific tribal identity used for a sports team, uh, then that is something that is that is allowable under the legislation. So uh, that is there. Um, but there was a, there was an iteration of the bill uh, to get it out of the education committee uh, in the last session, in which the bill was actually stripped of all of its mentions of, of native peoples, uh, and that wasn't something that we were totally in line for. Of course, we do want to see a native mascot ban, uh, but we want to make sure that we actually call out the injustice in order to uh, fully address it. 
So where is the bill now in status, and and um, do you think it has overarching support? Yes, and it, it's currently uh, both bills have been filed. The Senate and the House version have been filed, and they've been assigned uh, to committees. Uh, and I and I will say that there is a a growing town to town movement here in Massachusetts uh, to pass uh, to pass that bill. And and we want to make sure that you know we people understand that uh, we are seeking a statewide solution because this is a civil rights issue. Uh, this is not something that we can definitely uh, go town to town with and, and see, uh, as in Wakefield, uh, people play politics with a, with a question. We need to have that statewide solution. And so, you know, we definitely uh, call upon uh, all peoples uh, who align themselves with uh, Native Americans, but then also uh, concerned community members, uh, students. Um, that see these impacts uh, on these pe- on their on their peers, and want to actually have their voices heard. Uh, please come to the state house and and please do testify uh, to how these uh, symbols do resonate in your community. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Jean-Luc Perrit of the North American Indian Center of Boston. We're discussing the ongoing debate about the removal of sports mascots, which use Native American imagery. Um, so, Jean-Luc, tell me, what do the young people say to you? Because you just call for people to come down to the state house in support of these bills that would remove these mascots uh, being used in this way. Um casually and without people understanding, you know, what the meaning of it is. I'd like to hear some stories of young people and how they've been impacted as they have been students at schools where this imagery has been used. Yes, uh, for our indigenous students, they are actually seeing seeing this imagery and they are actually uh, seeing how people uh, judge them based upon these stereotypes, these racist uh, tropes, um, you know, giving uh, giving them basically false false imagery like attitudes about like even their own hair their own cultural expressions uh what does it mean to actually be a native american when we are um judged against these on these uh caricatures but then also we are seeing uh from students uh students of color i i attended a hearing of the uh, NAACP in, in Dartmouth uh, to get testimony from uh, students there. Um, and, you know, some of the cheerleaders were actually asking, you know, why are we doing these these war whoops? Like it is, it's it's 2021, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't, there, there's no reason to be doing this. I don't even know exactly, you know, where this, where this all comes from. Um, this is not something that, you know, Native Americans sound like. So why why are we even doing this? Um, so these these are the things that you know are indicative. The, this, these sort of anecdotes that are coming from students um, indicate uh, to us um, at at NACOB, uh, and throughout the Massachusetts Indigenous Legislative Coalition that these symbols and these uh, these mascots are not resonating with the student bodies of today. So what do you say, because there's a, there's always been a strong group of people, maybe less strong in this moment, of folks saying, you know, this is just political correctness. Get over yourself. Um, this 
you know, these were the names and the mascots that go back hundreds of years. Nobody meant any harm. Um, it's not to be taken that way. That's that's not what anybody meant. But it's a part of our school tradition is, as we're talking about high school traditions. And if it's a professional team, it's a part of the the history of the professional team. Um, and that means something, you know. Um, so I don't I don't understand why we just can't uh, leave it as it always has been. Right. Well, it is the it is the 21st century. Um, the United States, the the nation state as we have it right now, was was founded in 1776, right? And we can't, you know, we can't retain uh, things as they always have been for nearly 250 years. Uh, we we move on. We progress. We learn that there are some things uh, that are just not acceptable uh, for the people as we, uh, as we are today. And, and really, you know, we have to stop and think about the younger generation. Uh, what, what is the world that we are going to be leaving uh, for them? Uh, what, what are the values? What, are the cult- what is the culture uh, that we are going to be leaving for them? And, you know, this is something that the young people are, are, are really rejecting. Um, I mentioned earlier that in 2005, the NCAA banned teams from using, quote unquote, hostile and abusive racial, ethnic, national origin mascots, nicknames or imagery. But I want to also point out that the National Congress of American Indians have been calling uh, to eliminate these mascots since the late 1960s. So people have a real sense of how long this conversation has been going on. It's not a new thing. So um, I think that in some ways helps people who think it's some um, 21st century political correctness that actually this has been a concern for some time. I also want to give you a chance to answer because this also comes up in, when, you, when you have these discussions about mascots and, its, and their use uh, and whether or not they're harmless. Uh, don't you uh, Native Americans have other issues bigger than this to discuss? I mean, why are you paying attention to this? Why is this so important? Because our kids are dying. Because our youth are faced with uh, suicide rates two times of their white peers. Uh, because we are trying to safeguard uh, the future. We are not just responding to the crises of, of today. Uh, and, and racism is a public health crisis. Uh, so we have to do whatever we need to do uh, in order to address that. Uh, but we also have to safeguard our future uh, vis-a-vis the lives of our children. So um, I just want to point out that the new Secretary of the Interior and former New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland, who is herself indigenous, has long called for teams to change their mascots. Um, and we can think about... Uh, Congresswoman and now Secretary of Interior's uh, uh, positioning in politics as being part of a broader indigenous civil rights movement because um, she came into office saying these were some concerns and now in her new role she'll be able to to take a look and uh, on a broad basis look at many issues that are impacting Native Americans, their history and their and their future. So I, I, I asked it. I put that in that context because I want to know from you um, if you feel that the mascot debate has actually energized the indigenous civil rights movement because it's something that 
people can, even if they disagree, they can understand. It's pretty simple to understand. Um, and you can have some robust discussion and it leads you to talk about context and history and, uh, to your point, uh, social justice. Yes, and and I absolutely want to just just underline again that that sentiment of of having uh, the first uh, indigenous secretary of the interior, the first indigenous woman uh, secretary of the interior. At the, at the beginning of May, we're we're observing a, a missing and murdered indigenous women's uh, awareness week. Uh, and so we we have um, all of these, you know, this this, this mascot issue. It's it's not just about our youth dying, uh, but it is also about uh, the cheapening of all of our lives. But more specifically, our women, uh, and and we do have issues of, of violence against our women uh, that are perpetrated by non-indigenous peoples on tribal land. Uh, so there are, there are broader impacts when it comes to issues of um, boiling people down, uh, boiling cultures, boiling identities down to caricatures. Um, so we definitely want to make sure that we, uh, that we address this issue of, of mascots, but at the same time, we want to uplift um, the narratives of, of especially uh, our women uh, within our communities who, are, who have suffered the most violence. So we're down to 24 high schools, uh, still using the mascots at this moment, out of 40. You point out that's a huge drop, and it is, in a shorter period of time. What do you anticipate, let's say, by the end of this year? Will there be more votes to remove? What, what are you seeing? Definitely. We definitely see the town-by-town town movement uh, strengthening. Uh, this one vote in Wakefield, even though it was a setback on paper, I want to uh, definitely, uh, again, uh, reiterate for the listeners that this is a non-binding resolution. Uh, and so it is still up for, uh, to the school committee uh, as to whether they're going to uh, abide by that uh, non-binding resolution. Uh, so, you know, the the pushback is, is definitely weakening and uh, the movement towards social justice uh, is strengthening. So we're, we're definitely uh, looking forward to uh, more hearings within towns, uh, more removals, but then ultimately uh, we want to make sure that that uh, statewide solution uh, passes the Senate and the legislature and that Governor Baker signs it. Well, thank you so much for joining me and giving some breadth and depth to the mascot debate. Thank you, Callie. Jean-Luc Perry is president of the board of directors of the North American Indian Center of Boston and a member of the Tunica Biloxi tribe of Louisiana. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at wgbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, engineered by Dave Goodman. Our fabulous intern, Angela Yang, ends her tenure with us this week, and she's going out with a bang. She produced and edited this entire show. Thanks, Angela. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.